Welcome to the RSP Cast. I'm Matt Waldman with the Rookie Scouting Portfolio, where we go deep to help you learn the game and play the game to the best of your ability. A few weeks ago, I did a preseason skill player watch list podcast. That's a mouthful. The All-22 Rookie Team. These are below-the-radar players whose draft capital didn't match their talent. This week, we're continuing the preseason watch list conversation with the players and situations that I'm most interested in monitoring during training camp. Of course, it's easy to monitor news about players in training camp. Discerning what's actionable information from that news is a different matter entirely. And this is something I'm covering in the 2022 RSP Pre-Draft Post-Draft Services June Newsletter. Um, it's going to be a 10-point primer on putting training camp news in perspective especially with regard to rookies, second-year players, and low-cost vets and journeymen. Future newsletters will include um, a, a pair of rankings updates from the past three years of rookie classes, deeper dives into individual talents working their way into prominent roles, and exclusive scouting reports of talents I'm studying for the 2023 draft class. You get this newsletter as a part of the 2022 RSP pre-draft, post-draft package for $21.95 at mattwaldman.com, and it's available for immediate download. Now, if you're already a subscriber, I really appreciate it, and I never tire of the feedback you routinely send my way, and I aim to shock new readers and maintain a high bar for returning customers. Based on what I'm seeing so far, I, I'm reaching those goals this year. I'm thankful for that. Um, if you haven't purchased the 2022 RSP Dynasty projections and complete team-by-team -team rankings package, that's available for $24.95. And I emailed a link and password to the first June update that I provided to the Projections Dynasty rankings that came out two weeks ago. So if you were a subscriber, you should have gotten an email um, in June. If you recently subscribed in, say, the past 24 hours, um, I send I send out um, updates. I send out um, links and passwords to new customers within 24 hours of purchase. And this per, um, this service is a great way to complete the loop for dynasty managers. I've added some notations for players in my tiered rankings that give you some idea of who I believe have high ceilings, low floors, and boom bust values. And I'm also going to begin labeling players as scheme players and matchup players. Scheme players need the offense to create opportunities more often than matchup players who create them more often on their own. This should help you get a feel for the type of players you need to have on your roster builds, or at least how to create a balance that's weighted more towards matchup players whenever you can. Again, mattwaldman.com is where you can order these two products and has been the case for the past decade. The RSP has donated $5,000 of the proceeds to Darkness to Light to aid their educational and awareness programs on the subject of preventing sexual abuse of children, as well as how to um, address the issue when it's reported um, so that way children aren't victimized a second time from the mishandling of these situations. Um, so far, um, the RSP has donated over $55,000 to detail.org during the past decade. We're really proud of that. And lastly, John Hodgins, he met his $7,500 goal on his GoFundMe so he can relocate himself and his family, reunite with members of his family, namely his daughter, and have a healthy and safe home base to address his kidney disease. When he reached out to me, he had $350 in the GoFundMe back in early February. 
Thanks to all of you who donated during the past four months, he's reached that goal. So big congratulations to John and a shout out to all of you who donated, especially uh, and a special shout out to Joshua Baker, whose monthly commitment to this campaign really hasn't gone unnoticed by John or myself. So Joshua, special thanks to you. And to continue the RSP's preseason skill player watch list with players and situations I'm looking for, let's get started. We're going to go by alphabetical order in terms of team. And I'm not covering every team here, just players and situations that stand out the most at this early stage of the summer. Let's start with Arizona. The Cardinals receiving core is what intrigues me, especially Marquise Brown and Rondell Moore. Both have a chance to be front and center in the spotlight during the first six weeks of the season without DeAndre Hopkins. And even so, I still think we're going to be looking at a collective effort to offset the loss of Hopkins during that time. And part of this collective effort is going to include Cliff Kingsbury doing a better job of creating opportunities for his existing talents by matching the scheme around the personnel. This is something he stated that he didn't do a very good job of last year. And it's understandable. You have to be creative when you lose somebody like Hopkins because even though he's gotten older and though he's not a fast player, he's a special receiver. And it's because his matchup abilities are elite against tight physical coverage. This, this is something that if you look at the rest of the receivers on this roster, only A.J. Green was on Hopkins level in this facet of wide receiver play. And I'm talking about A.J. Green in the past, Cincinnati A.J. Green. He might still have some of that potential even this year at an old, as an elder statesman, but it would take Green and Murray really improving their connection heading into this year. And that's something that Green has said he and Murray still had room to improve upon. So if that can happen, maybe we'll see a renaissance with Green to some of the elite levels of performance that he once had. Now, I'm not counting on it. You're probably not counting on it either, and I think that's probably smart. I still think Green can be a nice contributor, you know, maybe a plus statistical version of what we saw of Rand him and Randall Cobb in terms of, you know, in that 600 to 800 yard range. Um, you know, maybe 900 to 1,000 yards if, if they really just have really improved their connection. But I don't think we're going to see A.J. Green back to 1,300, 1,400-yard seasons um, at this point in his career. Still, you know, other than Green, there isn't a receiver on this roster who has that rare ability to win in tight physical coverage on a regular basis. What, you know, for th these receivers like Brown and Rondale Moore um, and and this, this version of Green at this point, what's rare for them was more the norm and has been more the norm for Hopkins. So keep that in mind. You know, Marquise Brown, he can take contact, but he's not a contested catch maven. And that means... How you target Brown is different than how you would target Hopkins. You just don't replace them one for one in role in this offense. Um, first of all, 
you when you have a guy like Hopkins, a quarterback has a bit of a fudge factor with his decision making. He can target a receiver a little earlier at the you know during the stem of the route and anticipate a little better when the route is covered tightly because he knows that if he places the ball within a certain area, Hopkins is a master at positioning himself against a defender to be able to have great access to the football in ways that a lot of receivers aren't good at. And Hopkins is also a physical receiver off the line who, if he does take contact early, it doesn't derail his route. Whereas with Brown, you're really leaning on Brown to avoid contact and get early separation. When he can do that, then you can target him early in a route. But if you're oftentimes you're targeting him in later to see if he earns that separation, especially with breaks on shorter and intermediate routes, um, you want to see that he gets off cleanly. Whereas with Hopkins, you don't have to worry about that as much. So there's a little less room for fudge factor with Brown, even if there's rapport between Murray and Brown. Remember that at OU, Brown was running wide open a lot, <laughs> at, you know, due to his speed. It what he wasn't dealing with pro level coverage on a consistent basis, um, in the way that you see the way Murray targeted Hopkins or anybody targeting Hopkins during Hopkins' career. Rondale Moore. Now, what's interesting about him is that he got the Steve Smith comparison in many drafts in Nick Circles. Now, I needed to see a lot more proof that Moore could win contested tight coverage targets at a high level um, to earn that type of comp. Um, but what he has proven thus far is that he has the potential to adjust to the ball and find ways to uncover with the ball in the air um, when a defender is playing over the top of him. What I need to see more of is whether a defender who is on Moore's hip throughout the route um, is something that Moore can overcome and that he can also earn the trust of his quarterback to get targeted in these situations. The tight man-to-man -man press coverage rather than the off coverage or the zone coverage. If Moore can start showing some of that with his route running, especially on the perimeter, then you might be looking at a player who could become the go-to guy in this offense. But he has to prove it. He hasn't proven it to me in college. And when I've seen some of my colleagues say, well, what do you think of this on tape, Matt? Or here's an example of him catching a ball against tight coverage what they're showing me are routes where it's more of a vertical route where the receiver has gotten behind the defender and the defender is trailing the man. Not where the receiver is in a situation where the defender looks like he has favorable leverage in the coverage, the quarterback throws it anyway, and the receiver, and then Moore is able to uncover um, and be able to make the play. That's where we've got to see Moore take, be able to show that next facet of route running that I think is missing from his game at this stage. Um, even so, Moore still intrigues me because his ability to earn quick separation from the slot um, is fantastic. He has great footwork. He's unbelievably quick, has great change of direction skills. And, you know, if you, if, 
that ability is accessed, and it should be because Christian Kirk's gone, and Cliff Kingsbury can actually game plan to leverage more strengths, then Moore has a good shot of delivering meaningful production on the premise that not only he'll be replacing what Kirk did, but also Kingsbury's going to add to it. Now, the big question is, will Kingsbury um, game plan well? He's blamed himself, saying that he didn't do a good job of it last year while Hopkins was gone. And um, there was warranted criticism from outside the organization that Kingsbury hasn't been very flexible or creative offensively compared to what was um, the buzz about Kingsbury's strengths heading into the NFL. Um, the big question for me is whether Moore or Brown have the intermediate boundary game of DeAndre Hopkins that can put opposing defenses in binds. Because what they do against off coverage is good enough. You know, what they can do in the vertical game, certainly strengths there. Um, plays in space where they can be used as runners after the catch, also strengths. But what about the deep comeback, the deep out, um, you know, the dig route, routes that routes where they're going to face defenders, hooks and curls one on one that are somewhere between 15 to 20 yards downfield. Can they face a primary cover corner with speed and physicality and win those routes? Because the best receivers often do. The best receivers on each team often at least are kind of have a have a you know kind of a draw where they win some lose some against a defender but have some meaningful plays of that type and it forces the defense to honor um, that aspect of the game which can open up the rest of the passing game if they can't do that and they don't have a receiver who does it can allow defenses to cheat a little bit more towards the middle of the field or to use more single coverage and know that you know know that they can that they don't have to double up on any single player and with Hopkins you knew that you had to put your best man on him and sometimes shade a safety over there so that's one of the bigger questions if they can do it against off coverage but not tight um, you know not tight man to man then I think A.J. Green and Zach Ertz will have to pick up the slack and that will limit more in Brown's upside. Green certainly still has some of the skills to be that intermediate presence as a route runner. Um, but again, he's not, you know, I don't think he's going to return to that level of being an elite receiver who can also make the big plays downfield. So when teams not don't respect Green as much as a vertical threat, or don't have to, it also kind of helps how they can cover him on intermediate routes. So Moore and Brown, those are guys I really want to watch. I think that Moore has an opportunity to maybe become one of the three most productive receivers on the Arizona roster this year, but there's enough volatility to his game, the his usage, and the return of Hopkins that he could also still remain behind A.J. Green as no better than the fourth or fifth option on this team. So 
you know, really depends. You know, we're going to get a chance to see how much of Christian Kirk's um, role Moore is going to replace and how much of it Brown is going to replace and how creative Kingsbury can be with either guy. Next, let's go to Baltimore. Now, currently, I have Lamar Jackson projected in the RSP Dynasty rankings and projections for a low passing yardage total. The totals I have for him is 2,911 yards, 25 scores, and with Bart Andrews and Rashad Bateman as the top two receivers, combining for 1,900 yards receiving um, out of the 2,900. I only have one receiver other than this duo earning more than 225 yards receiving, and that player is Devin Duvernay at somewhere a little over 400 yards. All these totals seem low to me, and I think I'm lower on Lamar Jackson's production than I should be at this stage, but when you look at history, consider the fact that Lamar Jackson's career-high totals are 3,127 yards passing. That's only 200 and... Um, 16 yards more than what I'm projecting. 36 passing total scores. That's that's a lot more than what I have right now. And 1,213 rushing yards with seven rushing scores. Um, so these are all marks and high water marks from 2019. My totals this year are 600 yards and 13 total touchdowns lower than that banner year. So there's room for me to to climb up to that point if I'm not projecting a career year from Jackson in 2022. So I'm likely to bump Jackson in some ways. I think instead of having him at, you know, 800 yards rushing, I'll probably put him at um, 1,000 yards and nine scores for my next projections update. Um, and I'd probably be a little surprised if he reaches that 1,200-yard rushing mark again in his career. And it's only because I think 2019 was an acclimation period for opposing defenses. Still, Jackson hasn't taken the kind of hits that people like to project on him because if you look at the superficial observations I've seen of Jackson, they always say that he takes a lot of punishment because he's such a he runs so much. But if you actually watch the tape, he's he usually gets through the pocket cleanly if he's breaking to run. And, and the types of hits he takes aren't really that punishing. And more often, on design runs, he's running to the perimeter and going out of bounds, and he takes minimal contact. He's only 25 years old. So um, with the offense posing matchup problems that they can pose when healthy because of this option game and the strength of the run in the interior run game as well as Jackson's speed to the edge and his deep prowess, as a passer. Jackson could give us another three to four years of 1,000-yard rushing totals and perhaps even top that 1,213 um, rushing yard career best of, 12, one, of 1,213 rushing yards. He might, he might be able to surpass that. Um, and this is what's intriguing to me because it really just depends on how the Ravens want to dictate Lamar Jackson's career arc. Do they see him as an, a quarterbacking anomaly and accept that as good as he is in the pocket, he just lacks that prototypical arm strength um, in terms of high-velocity targets? If they think that he lacks that and will never develop it, and I think that's, that's more likely. I don't think he will. If he doesn't develop into that perimeter timing route passer, 
then they may just keep the offense they have. But then you wonder if they think or hope that Jackson can become more as a passer than he has shown and set an expectation for him to to evolve. Now, I'm guessing they're just going to accept who Jackson is, stick with what's worked, and make small tweaks where they can to maximize his work as a passer. Um, obviously, I think he's he, he's great in the pocket, throws a good deep ball where you can put air under it. It's just the perimeter game in the intermediate ranges of the field, those comebacks, those deep outs that are harder for him to hit the opposite field throws with velocity. That's not his game. So one of the tweaks I'm hoping to see and have – and I've something I've called for since 2019 was for Baltimore to use Devin Duvernay more like Danny Woodhead. Duvernay is known for his speed, and that's translated occasionally on seam routes, deep crossers, and the occasional post. Um, but his yards per catch average is more in line with the slot receiver up to this point. They're hoping, obviously, that he can replace Mar- help replace Marquise Brown's. You know, and maybe the combination of Duvernay and Bateman can be a net positive for the loss of Marquise Brown and a veteran like Miles Boykin, who really hasn't didn't contribute much to that team. And a lot of that was because he was a time a perimeter timing route runner, and that wasn't Lamar Jackson's specialty. Now, you know where we've seen Duvernay's skill is as a Pro Bowl return specialist. That's where we've seen the speed. Still, I'd like to see Baltimore use Duvernay more as part of the backfield. They could do a they already have a good option game. If you can use Duvernay where you use the option game going to one edge and run Duvernay counter to that so that you have the potential for a reverse pitch, or that you can use the potential for a fly sweep or end around to Duvernay as a constraint to hold the defense. That's helpful even without him getting a lot of touches that way. But another thing that you can do is that you can use that misdirection to enhance your play action packages where instead of running to the edge, you can fake the run to the edge, you know, with a couple of two to three steps to the outside and then drop back. Drop back and throw the misdirection or the, the, um, you know, the throwback to Duvernay in the flat. Maybe match him up, you know, draw a matchup with him against a linebacker in the intermediate game with bullet routes, you know, or you can use screens with him with that type of a a thing, with that type of a, a package. The other thing that you can do is get him in the backfield and match him up against linebackers on these bullet routes or have him, or have him leak out as a check down option. He is a former running back and a very good high school running back who showed even at Texas that he could run the ball between the tackles as well as on the perimeter. So using him in the red zone wouldn't be a bad option either. It doesn't mean he's the single back in the red zone, but use him in the same backfield with J.K. Dobbins or Gus Edwards where you have that element of surprise or possibility that either you could – Match, you know, depending on how the defense plays him, you can match him up against a linebacker by splitting him out of the backfield late. You can keep him in the backfield and have him leak out. Um, you can hand him the ball on certain looks. You can motion out your your running back, you know, your main running back as a receiver, fake the ball to Duvernay after that. There's a lot of different things you can do to confuse defenses or make them account for scenarios 
and then be able to create easy plays for yourself. So I think Duvernay gives you a lot in terms of production in the red zone, both as a perimeter and box runner, a deep threat, and a receiver um, in the slot and out of the backfield. And this red zone package I'm talking about could become more of a reality if they can get a third receiver to really start to assert himself in the offense. And I think Tylen Wallace is a good candidate to prove his worth as a perimeter option. And he's another guy I'm keeping an eye on during camp to see if he can earn a recurring role. Let's go a little bit further west and head to Chicago. They have an ascending talent in Darnell Mooney. They have a solid young tight end prospect in Cole Komet. But there's a th- is there a third option? Because you really need three to four options to help your for your quarterback to have um, – the ability to support a high-octane passing offense. And who could be that third option? Certainly, you're going to hear people talk about Velas Jones Jr. or Velas Jones Jr. based on his recent draft capital, but I'm a little skeptical of his versatility at this point. It might happen, but I think he's a little bit more of a schemed player. And and you'll they'll get some production out of him as a schemed player, someone that you can feature on throwbacks and screens and RPOs, some crossing routes, you know, work like that. But I think the best overall receivers who give you yak skills, deep threat potential, especially on double moves, even though they don't have Jones's speed, um, and some ability to adjust to the football and run decent routes, Byron Pringle and Dante Pettis, I think, are the best ones with legitimate contributor upside. And... As the media likes to do, you know, you're seeing recent, you know, speculation that maybe they'll see a trade for a second receiver. Maybe, maybe it's Kenny Galladay, but I wouldn't rule out Pringle or Pettis delivering just yet. You know, first of all, both, you know, Pringle really established himself as a Pat Mahomes favorite as one of the contributors on the offense, not starters, but contributors. And you could see that he earned more of, you know, Mahomes' trust than a, than a, you know, Demarcus Robinson or even a McCole Hardman in many cases. He was able to work the middle of the field well. He was reliable catching the ball, showed some red zone prowess as time went on. And remember, that red zone prowess needs to, de- to de- develop when you're a, uh, a reserve working your way up to a contributor as opposed to being a guy who's thrust into the starting lineup immediately. So the fact that Byron Pringle was able to earn the trust of Mahomes as, you know, a red zone target a little more often from that starting point is impressive. So, you know, outside of the the re- recent arrest he had and he already has a long rap sheet from earlier in his college days where he committed armed robbery and he was and had and had to really and serve jail time. You know, this is a player that, you know, you got to watch for some of that off field stuff because he did, you know, did some boneheaded driving around in a parking lot that got him arrested this summer or the spring. So he might even miss a little bit of time, you know, as a result of that. But uh, I think he'll play enough that he can still be a fantasy factor as well as a legitimate on 
you know, which also makes him a legitimate on-field factor, you know, for real football. And Pettis, you guys know that I had a high grade on Dante Pettis, and, you know, he ended up in Kyle Shanahan's doghouse, which um, is becoming, you know, kind of a mythological thing on the level of what his Papa Shanahan used to do with players. Now, doesn't and I'm not saying it wasn't deserved. It very well might be. Um, and Pettis hasn't really, you know, didn't do enough in New York to to earn another contract. Now, that said, when he was on the field, he did have some standout moments. You just wonder about whether, you know, he was already labeled in a certain way and they saw him as a reserve and a special teamer and that's it and just labeled him as such because you they, players get those labels. And Pettis might be in that in that realm where teams aren't counting on him to be more than what he's delivered thus far for, say, the Giants. Um, and he may have gotten a label around the league as someone who just who who is talented but doesn't put in the work to earn a legitimate starting job unless called upon. We'll see if that happens. I know that we know that he can make contested catches. We know that he can work multiple roles and. Um, multiple positions, either flanker or slot. He's got skill after the catch. Um, he tracks the ball extraordinarily well. Um, so, you know, could this be his second opportunity? It's possible. So, you know, the media is going to guess for a trade for a second receiver. I think that's possible. Just don't rule out Pringle or, or Pettis just yet as maybe that third option for this offense. Um, so keep that in mind. Green Bay staying in the division and not too far from uh, Chicago. Their passing game obviously is a situation where I know I'm going to be changing my projections throughout the summer. Um, there's a, the reason is that there's a lot of reasonable outcomes to project among Sammy Watkins, Alan Lazard, and Robert Tunyon, who are probably the headliners in this passing game. However, Amari Rogers and perhaps Christian Watson and maybe a slight chance of Romeo Dobbs, they could find themselves prominently in the mix as well. Now, Watkins, I know, he gets a lot of grief from fans and media, especially in the fantasy industry because after a great college career and early buzz as a potential generational talent, Watkins' career has really been that of a journeyman starter who's largely underachieved in large part due to injury. Now, he's only had three fantasy starter seasons during his career. But when he played at least 13 games, that's when they all happened. So injury has been that factor. Um, so three out of the four times he's played at least 13 games, he's been a fantasy starter. And he's a veteran matchup skill player still in his athletic prime. And the Packers have few of those right now. I mean, the ones they have are either coming off injury like Robert Tunyon. They're older like Randall Cobb, so may have lost a little bit. Or they're inexperienced rookies. So I want you to think about Sammy Watkins maybe on the level of Brandon Lloyd. If you remember Brandon Lloyd, he delivered 1,448 yards and 11 scores in 2010. That was n number two overall among fantasy receivers, I believe. It's one of the top two spots, I know. 
and Lloyd was a great talent. He played seven years um, up to that point in 2010. He had played seven years and never earned more than 733 yards. And that was five year, That happened five years before his 1,448-yard season, nearly doubling his production. It was also the only time Brandon Lloyd played a full 16-game season until 2010, that 733-yard effort. So injury was also an issue with him. Now, Lloyd, there are other issues with Lloyd's game that, are, that carry more weight as to why he's a different player than Watkins. But both guys were immense talents. And when you're seeking potential exceptions to the rule, you want guys who are going to be low-end investments according to average draft position, and both of them were at that point, you know, that you know, during the summer. They weren't going to be counted on to be the primary guy to that level. So if you're looking for an exception to the rule, it's a low investment cost, and they have high level talent. And that's what you're looking for as a potential exception. You know, and I'm talking route running versatility inside and out, deep ball tracking, contested best catch skills, yards after the catch ability. They had that. Watkins has that. So while I'm not expecting right now a 1,000 yards out of Watkins this year just because I'm projecting injury, (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm baking some of that into his projection. His talent and the quarterback that he's playing with are good enough for it to happen. In fact, his talent and the quarterback are good enough for Watkins to have a 1,400-yard campaign. Okay, I mean, look at it this way. The Packers receivers under Aaron Rodgers for the past 14 years has averaged 135 targets, 87 catches, 1,203 yards, and 11 scores. These leading receivers have included Donvante Adams, Jordy Nelson, Randall Cobb, James Jones, and Craig Jennings. Those guys averaged 135 targets, 87 catches, 1,203 yards, and 11 scores. And there were also receivers who were close to the target leaders for four to five of those 14 seasons, which included wide receiver two performances that were very good from Cobb, Jones, and Donald Driver. So when you look at this Packers roster right now, the only receiver in his prime, athletically, with NFL experience on this roster, capable of approaching these numbers, is Sammy Watkins. Alan Lazard, I think that's a that's a harder thing to to really um, count on. He's because he's more of a scheme talent. He was a fantasy wide receiver four last year, a top forty eight option, who has become a steady contributor to the Packers passing game. And he it, but he's an undrafted big man with build up speed and little acceleration compared to most NFL starters who are going to operate outside. And he, he did a great job of bouncing from Jacksonville to Green Bay and gradually earning Aaron Rodgers' trust because he has a good work ethic. He's, he's in, in zone coverage. He's where he's supposed to be. He's a good student of the game to be on the same page with Rodgers pre-snap and early post-snap to make these route adjustments. Man reads the coverage well, so his assignment's sound. Um, and this is a vital part of, 
of contributing to a passing game. But, you know, his upside to me is more around wide receiver three levels. And even with the departure of Devontae Adams and Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Um, you know, I don't see him being an every week starter as a wide receiver too, unless they, unless this offense really blows up one way or the other, where it's either a great offense and they support three to four fantasy options in the passing game. And a lot of the running free type of routes in zone or misassignments that defenders get because they have to um, worry about other receivers within bunch sets or things like that, that you see a lot of breakdowns that benefit big plays for Lazard. Or if everyone gets hurt, and Lazard gets forced fed. And even then, I think it's low wide receiver two upside. So, and I think that's a remote possibility. You know, the, the, the one matchup player characteristic that Lazard has is contested catches that come on trust throws into tight windows. And it's an impressive skill, but it's not an unusual one for a wide receiver. And quarterbacks are selective about when to aggressively target these types of receivers. Remember, you know, Jordy Nelson did this very well, but that era of football where Nelson did it, the back shoulder play was still rather new. Um, Nelson also had the speed to threaten the vertical um, ranges of the field one-on-one -on -one and positioned himself extremely well in on targets that weren't back shoulder, which set up the back shoulder play even better. So... Keep that in mind. I think that most of Lazard's catches come from scheme plays designed to exploit potential theoretical holes in coverage or test the assignment soundness of a defender or unit. Um, the, uh, the real matchup players in Green Bay's offense, other than Watkins, who have the potential to surprise, are rookie Christian Watson and second-year player Amari Rodgers. And to me, it's Amari Rodgers I'm keeping an eye on. Randall Cobb shared this spring that he thinks the light's coming on for Rodgers. And this is a player I compared pre-draft to a bigger Cobb. I think he has 1,000-yard 10-score upside due to his vertical prowess, his yak skills, and his versatility to earn red zone targets from a variety of roles, including slot, split end, and flanker, or even as a back from the backfield. Now, prior to the draft, um, Rodgers needed to improve his footwork, especially during releases and transitions after the catch. I saw a lot of stumbling or falling in these situations, and it, and it came down to his footwork. Um, he also needs to improve the snap of his turns with breaks, being more sudden with his breaks. And this isn't about athletic ability. It's really about refining details. But if he refines these details, you'll see and makes, begins making these big plays, or significant plays, I think the criticism that you see centered around his relative athletic score will fade somewhat from the public eye. Um, he's always had strong spatial awareness as a pass tracker, and he's figured out how to find open spaces in NFL zones. Or if, excuse me, he's figured, he's known how to find open spaces in zones, but as long as he's figured out that he can do that against NFL caliber zones like he did at Clemson. If that happens, I think he can become a number two option for this receiving core. Vaulting past Lazard um, and at least Watkins this year due to that versatility. 
Now, the problem is, is that what makes Rodgers intriguing is that there's also a realistic outcome where he doesn't take that next step and he's considered an afterthought. And even Randall Cobb is still ahead of him as the number four, number five option in this offense. So right now, I'm projecting Rodgers at about 579 yards and five scores, which is third among Packers receivers in yardage. However, um, if this scenario is really based on no Packer receiver establishing themselves as the clear go-to guy for Rodgers, and I just don't think it's going to be like that. I'm taking the cautious approach in terms of you know spreading it out, kind of the way that the Raiders were spread out before Devontae Adams was there. Um, and, you know, looking at it from the standpoint of no one really stands out majorly, but I think that's going to change. You know, Robert Tunyon's recovery from ACL injury is ahead of schedule, at least according to Gutenkist. Um, but he isn't participating in mini camp and he could be on the PUP list when training camp begins. Now, last year, Tunyon earned nearly 600 yards and 11 scores. Not last year, two years ago, excuse me. And this year, I have him at 400 yards and five scores, but I'm anticipating my final projection for the summer is going to put Tunyon in the neighborhood of 700 yards and eight to 10 touchdowns. I just want to be certain that his recovery doesn't keep him out of the starting lineup in September. So Amari Rogers, Sammy Watkins, Robert Tunyon. Those are the three players I'm looking at right now. I expect Tunyon to be kind of the number three option. Um, Amari Rogers could vault over um, Alan Lazard as the number two option and maybe relegate um, Lazard to the number three or number four option. Um, and then I'm looking at Sammy Watkins as a potential, you know, league winner from a deep, um, you know, from a deep draft position with his potential to become a, a, an elite wide receiver one in production. Um, but the boom bust value is extraordinarily high there. So you're not trying to reach for this guy, you know, more likely he's going to be a, you know, mid range wide receiver three, um, in totals, um, where he gives, and a lot of that's going to be compressed into the time that he plays versus the time that he's injured. So let's move on to Jacksonville. Travis Etienne, he's getting that high riser treatment in the media. And this is after um, offensive coordinator Press Taylor discussed Etienne's speed in an interview and, and how the potential is there for him to have a multifaceted role as a runner and receiver. And next thing you know, you're hearing is Etienne going to get used like Debo Samuel. Click, 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 click. Yeah, I know. See, there you go. Jaguars, you know, what he said was this, okay, about Etienne. I just want you to, to listen to it. He said, whatever is going to give us the best opportunity to put Travis in a position to succeed is what we're going to do. Whether that's as a receiver coming out of the backfield or as a running back, leaving the backfield. So m the first two options are playing in the backfield, not being a wide receiver. To And then he says, to be a receiver, whatever that may be, I think that kind of evolves as the season goes or week by week, really. Well, again, what that just tells me is 
We don't know what his role will be in that facet. We're going to experiment with it some, but we don't know how much we're going to rely on it. That's really what he's saying. Taylor went on to praise Etienne and his speed, which he described as very real. Uh, duh, right? I mean, seriously. Are we, are we breaking new ground here that Etienne is fast? I mean, if you haven't watched, you could have watched him in high school and that could have been evident. So he also added that the running back has done a good job of learning the different roles they're trying him at. Trying him at not, not planning on using him, trying him at. We're throwing him, quote, we're throwing him in all different positions just to see what he's comfortable with and what he needs to work on moving forward. In other words, they're testing out what Etienne might be able to do. It's amazing to me where we go with statements like these. Yes, it's possible Etienne could become a Debo Samuel-like figure out of this offense used in a way where he could become a production leader for this team and maybe in fantasy. Absolutely possible. Probable? I don't think I hear language that says probable. I hear language that says we're trying to throw things up on the wall to see what sticks. And he's fast. Oh, by the way, we know he's fast. And yes, it's good that he's learned a good he's done a good job of learning the different roles they're trying him at, but you know, ha- learning them and having them down, being assignment sound, that's good. That's positive. You know, what's actually being said though is they haven't figured out what's best for the offense, and there's a difference between executing assignments the way they're on the board and actual production in live game action. And this is where we haven't seen Travis Etienne, at least not since Clemson. And if you looked at the Clemson tape, there's flaws in Etienne's execution and live action when you translate his game to the NFL. You know, bouncing plays too much outside, not being patient enough, having some issues with setting up or reading leverage, you know, efficient job of transitioning downhill. These are things that he might need another year to get better at. So while I like the idea of Etienne becoming the backfield leader in this offense, especially if James Robinson doesn't return to form from his Achilles injury by October. But for now, I have Etienne earning about 950 yards of offense. Now, I'll probably raise the bar in his projections to 1,100 to 1,200 total yards, but I'm far more inclined to look at Snoop Connor, the rookie from Mississippi, old Miss, or um, or Robinson, or a combination of both, or maybe even a veteran acquisition to offset any loss of production from a rehabbing Robinson. Because Etienne's effectiveness between the tackles still has question marks that have not been resolved by what beat writers have seen in training camp or even coaches. Coaches are the first to tell you we don't really know what we got in running back between the tackles until we see him in live game action. And you haven't seen that yet in the NFL from Travis Etienne. So, um, you know, depending on system fit and usage, there's some high upside here, but I'm not completely there with, you know, putting projecting him that high yet. So let's move on to Las Vegas. Josh McDaniel's offense and the addition of Devontae Adams. This could translate to Derek Carr building on a career year 
he had a career year last year, and he did it without a primary receiver. After all, Henry Ruggs was a first-round draft pick, but really only showed that he was a boom-bust deep threat in his rookie year and part of his second year before you know, unfortunate, his unfortunate um, accident that will you know, put him in jail for a long time, most likely. So, you know, they had to spread a lot of that production out among a number of receivers for Derek Carr to get 4,800 yards, which is impressive from the point of view of looking at at Carr's um, development. But now with Devontae Adams, we should expect this to be a more consolidated offense. Right now, I'm low on on Devontae Adams with my initial projections. Lower than I should be, and I'm going to raise that bar. But right now, I have him at 1,082 yards and seven scores. I'm going to end, I'm anticipating that I'll probably add another 35 to 40 targets to Adams' totals, up his catch percentage and his volume, and get him in range of about 1,200 to 1,300 yards and 12 to 15 scores. Um, you know, considering how much of the passing production for the Raiders was spread out last year due to the injuries, the off field issues, and underperformance of young talents. I think we're going to see the that 4,800 yards of production be repeated, maybe even more, but it be more consolidated among Adams, Waller, or Darren Waller, and Hunter Renfro with the potential for a fourth option that we'll talk about in a moment. Now, if you haven't read this week's gut check at footballguys.com on underrated matchup players, Hunter Renfro tops my list as the most underrated matchup player um, for fantasy this season, and I suggest you check it out. Um, you can find it by just typing my name into the search bar um, and find my recent articles this way. But let's go back to that fourth option with potential fantasy option. If there is one in Las Vegas, I think it's going to come down to the running back as a receiver out of the backfield or a second tight end. Now, if I were to choose who it would be based on what I've seen on film, I think the safest choice is Foster Moreau. And I think he'd get a slight edge in production or potential for higher production over Josh Jacobs, Kenyon Drake, or the rookie Zamir White. And here's why. First of all, Josh Jacobs is on the final year of his contract. They drafted Zamir White, which is probably Josh McDaniel's guy. They're probably going to move on from Jacobs. Um, so, you know, there's there's that boom bust quality of like, let's just use the heck out of him and feature him a lot as a receiver. He was an excellent receiver out of the backfield at Alabama. It would make the most sense short term. Kenyon Drake's a good receiver out of the backfield. He's a boom-bust runner between the tackles. If you can keep Josh Jacobs on the field and use him more often this way, that's great. Samir White runs like he's 20 pounds heavier than he is. He can catch the ball. Not a great pass protector at this stage. Room to improve. May get better. May even get better fast. But I would anticipate that White's going to need an acclimation year to really play to his potential or start to show that potential in a starting lineup. So that leaves Moreau. And if you look at Moreau's tape, you see a guy who could be a starting tight end for a lot of teams right now and um, be a, a, a highly productive starting tight end. And when he's been targeted in the Raiders passing offense, he's shown acrobatic ability. He has elite level quickness. He has good acceleration. He can be physical. He makes plays after the catch and he's a good blocker. 
And when you think about Josh McDaniel's offenses, well, he was the one that helped support a Rob Gronkowski, Aaron Hernandez combination and a Rob Gronkowski, Martellus Bennett combination. So can Moreau maybe be that Gronkowski to Darren Waller's Hernandez? I know that Wall, um, Waller talks about himself being in the Gronkowski role. But Moreau might very well be that guy that they can foster more two tight end looks. Um, and then they can use three receiver sets in addition to that um, without a back in the backfield. Or they can use two tight end looks and really keep and keep Waller and Adams as the two receiver, or excuse me, Adams and Renfro as the two receivers and moving around um, Waller as that second tight end, you know, either detach him or put him in the lo- on the line. And then you, you know, you kind of have that, that look that can be multiple. So if Moreau gets to be the second tight end in this offense, um, or how about it this way? If this offense uses Moreau as that second tight end in the way the offense in Green in New England has used a second tight end, I think he could surprise as a low-end fantasy tight end one. So I'm really looking forward to any quality hints that give us any indication of that potential happening. Now, speaking of New England and players of systems past, the Patriots are reportedly considering using elements of the West Coast system that they've seen from Kyle Shanahan and then Mike Shanahan before that. And there's a thought that that would mean we see more outside zone. And if this is true, you know, then you're hearing some people, at least on my social media circle, saying maybe Pierre Strong's going to be a back to watch. Now, this idea that I've seen floating around skips right over the most important factor, which is the offensive line. And they've been molded to do a lot more inside running and a fair bit of gap concepts. Um, So the back may be the glamorous idea to discuss in the media, but I doubt the fourth round pick drives a change in in the system as much as the offensive line dictates what the system is. Um, And there are a lot of interesting talents at the running back position right now for the Patriots. So I think Strong's probably waiting in line for a bigger role in 2023 or 2024. But with that in mind, if you start to see a lot more West Coast elements being bandied about for the system, a lot more talk about Pierre Strong. He could be a good fit for that. Um, I saw him as kind of a Tevin Coleman, Raheem Mostert type of player. So it would make sense. Might come sooner than we expect. So I am monitoring it, maybe not as strongly as some of the other ones, but I thought it was an interesting element. And let's round it out here with Tampa Bay. Leonard Fournette's weight gain concerns me. And while there's a love fest for Rashad White's potential, I'm not going to forget about the aging Gio Bernard as an option. Now, last year, Bernard was the most used and most successful running back in the red zone. Then he got a little dinged up before the season started. Fournette took over receiving duties pretty well. They didn't use Bernard much at all during the year. Um, They had Ronald Jones and Fournette, and that worked out well enough for them. 
but Bernard's still in the in the lineup. And Rashad White, listen, he's a very good pass catcher. He has Leonard Fournette's, well, maybe not Leonard Fournette's size, but he's got the feature back size at a bare minimum that you're looking for from a guy that Leonard Fournette has that size as well. Now, the difference between Fournette and White in terms of skills is that White is a not a very strong, tight crease runner. And the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have been known for running a lot of duo, which are tight creases. The best two tight crease running backs in this lineup are Fournette and Bernard. White has a ways to go. He, he has to do a better job of committing to creases and staying committed to creases rather than thinking he can change his mind late in an approach. And if he can play to his size, then I think he'll realize that potential. But until then, I wouldn't forget about Gio Bernard as an option for for Tampa Bay this year, especially if Fournette's 20, you know, his weight gain where he needs to lose 20 to 30 pounds supposedly translates to him maybe not being in great shape or losing some of the uh, favor of the coaching staff. You know, and we've seen this before where Fournette's work ethic has been called into question and he's kind of, you know, gone up and down in terms of that commitment level during his career. He obviously is a high-level player, um, and if he says he's not worried about it and he can get into good condition, then maybe there's something to that. Um, you know, being in your mid-20s and losing 20 pounds isn't as big of a deal as if you're, you know, 40 or 50 years old with lower metabolism. But weight gain, weight loss is still a big deal in, a, in athletic endeavors, you know. And so we're not talking about him losing weight for one game. We're talking about, about him, you know, dealing with, you know, making sure that he's in good condition and not just losing weight. So that's a fascinating aspect I'm going to be monitoring. And then I think Rob Gronkowski's retirement is a fascinating one because we've already heard from Adam Schefter that Drew Rosenhaus' agent or Gronkowski's agent said that Gronkowski could come back to play sometime this year. Um, So what this tells me is this. Gronkowski's often said he could get ready in a few weeks and be ready to play football. He's been known as the type of guy that, that I wouldn't say is slack as a practice player, but he's shown that he can, he can pick things up fast as a, you know, and translate it to the field very well in a way where he can be a little more casual. Veterans tend to be that way. And if you're a team like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers that doesn't have Chris Godwin healthy yet, just yet, you're trying to find another receiver, whether it's Russell Gage, you know, you, just, you lost Justin Watson, whether Jalen Darden can pick things up and become a player that he's shown flashes of becoming. And you have a guy like Kate Otten, who was an underrated receiver, who was dealing with injury last year in Washington. If you have an opportunity to get these guys up to speed and give them a lot of reps with Gronkowski out of the picture, Maybe you won't need Gronkowski, or at least you get more opportunities to evaluate your younger talent. And if they really don't work out, Gronkowski can be back by, 
you know, can be back soon enough that he can have an impact. Or the fact is, is that they know Gronkowski will be back by midseason, and they they just focus on working with the guys that they have, and then get the boosts that they want. So Kate Otten, very tough for a tight end to be a, a legitimate fantasy tight end one immediately, but he was one of the better route runners in this class. Very promising as a blocker. If he can get up to speed quickly, he might be one of those underrated exceptions to the rule and worth monitoring there. Cameron Brait, I think you you know he's got a high floor. I think he's got a low tight end one ceiling if everything comes together, but I wouldn't count on it. I think Otten will eat into much of those touches or Gronkowski will come back. So that's it for this week. No podcast next week. I'm going to be doing some NFL scouting. Um, got a project that I'm working on as well with a team of people that is kind of behind the scenes. Um, and I'll perhaps do a little bit of fishing over the last week of June um, as a lot of the media takes their vacation during this time. Um, after that, I'll be kicking things into gear with my scouting of the 2023 class and regular pods, articles, and videos. Remember, you can get your RSP services at mountwaldman.com. Pre-draft, post-draft is available for $21.95, and, the download, and it's downloadable immediately. The Dynasty Rankings and Projections, which is a completely separate product, is available for $24.95, and access is delivered within 24 hours of purchase. And I send you emails with links and pass, new passwords for updates each time I have a new update. Thanks again. Have a great week.